Well, we live in a, in a world where we are challenged today. Uh, we have those that come up against Christianity that, that hate God and hate Christ. And when we look into the scriptures and we see examples from the Apostle Paul, we know that he had opponents as well that came against him when he was involved in ministry. And in Philippians chapter 1, we want to look at verses 27 to 30 in particular. But starting in verse 21, we see where Paul starts off and says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Recently, there was an article that was written and showed up in many uh, news outlets talking about the animosity that's going on towards Christian churches, churches in general. And in this article, it's talking about 2023. According to the report that was done, 69 acts of hostility against churches in 29 states have already occurred during the first quarter of the year, including 53 acts of vandalism, 10 arson attacks or attempts, three gun-related incidents, three bomb threats, and two other incidents such as assault. The statistics represent approximately three times the number of hostile acts that FRC, that's the group that did the report, recorded in the same time frame last year. And it goes on to say, as secularism increases, people just understand religion less and less. They have less of the respect for religion that they might have had decades ago, said Del Turco, of what might drive someone to vandalize a church. This lady also pinpointed a conflict between Christianity and secular dogmas rooted in the sexual revolution, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, and other issues. All of these are increasingly in conflict with core Christian teachings and core Christian beliefs. So those on the left, are, is, it's getting increasingly intolerant of Christianity for this reason. And I think we're seeing that even being represented physically with these physical attacks on churches. So it's a big increase against Christianity. And as believers, you know, we, 
look at this, that it's happening, and we have different reactions. What, what might be some of those reactions that we would have? How do you respond to that? Anger? Yeah. Maybe you go online and make some comments, you know, fighting back against some of the things that are said. There's a myriad of responses that we can have, but many times it can be done in the flesh. And what we want to look at today from Philippians 1, don't be alarmed, be ready. Uh, The Christian's conduct in a hostile world. And we want to look at six ways to be ready for our opponents. And I use that word in particular, particular, opponents. Why? When we hear that word, we might think enemy, but... Is that the case? Paul had all kinds of enemies. Uh, And Christianity, even then, was viewed as narrow-mindedness, closed-mindedness, or outright foolishness uh, to unbelievers. And many today blame Christians for wars that take place, divisiveness, a lack of compassion, a lack of love or tolerance. Sometimes that's how we're, how we're viewed. What does the Bible say and how we're to respond to those who oppose the message of Christ? Maybe it's family members or friends, those that we work with that have this view, but we need to respond in a way that represents Christ. Paul and his fellow believers, they had their opponents. It was the Romans that were there opposing him. And they viewed Christians as atheists because uh, believers in Christ didn't believe in their God, so they were considered atheists. The Pharisees were always dogging Paul, and then there were the zealots who took issues into their own hands against the Romans. What did it look like in in the first century? If you were in Jerusalem and you were in the home of a member of the Jewish ruling class, he would be able to speak Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. He would wear Hellenistic clothing, which was a mixture of the the Greeks and and the the Jewish people. And they possessed Roman citizenship, and they claimed to worship the God of the Jews. His home contains artwork from the Mediterranean, and his library contains the works of a few pagan authors. When it comes to politics, he talks about the Jewish Sanhedrin, but also about the Roman threat of power over Jerusalem. There is a desire and a longing for Jewish independence. And it's in this context that the first century Christians found themselves. And the Jews were afraid that the Christians were going to spoil it for them and make the Romans mad, and that would cause the Romans to come in and and take over. And the Jews were looking for that independence. On top of the political situation that you had going on, you also had false teachers, the Gnostics, who denied the deity of Christ. And there was plenty more opponents that we could list. And it's in this context that we find ourselves. Christians were viewed by Greeks and Romans in the same class as lowly shepherds. Shepherds were thought of as dirty and smelly since they spent most of their time outdoors with the animals. And Aristotle said this, the laziest, quote, The laziest are shepherds who lead an idle life and get their subsistence without trouble from tame animals, their flocks having to wander from place to place in search of pasture. They are compelled to follow them, cultivating a sort of living farm, 
end of quote, kind of deriding the shepherds. Most Romans believe that shepherds practiced highway robbery as well, being out there. And so you can imagine when the metaphor of Christ as the good shepherd is talked about, what would the Romans think? They had a disdain for Christianity. And even hearing uh, the Old Testament images of God and King David as loving, responsible shepherds, that's not going to go over well with the Romans. This only helped confirm the disreputable nature of Christianity to them. Uh, One Roman writer, Suetonius, called Christianity, quote, a novel and mischievous superstition, says those that worship many gods. But that's how they viewed it. Uh, The upper classes scorned those uh, who were employed in the crafts. Uh, And you you wonder, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And that term, using that term slave to the Romans, had a, put a distaste in their mouths towards Christianity. So this is the backdrop that we find ourselves in in the first century. And when we look at Philippi, the city of Philippi where the Philippians lived, it was a Roman colony. And its citizens were actually Roman citizens, protected by Roman law. And just like the church of Jesus Christ is a colony of heaven on earth. And it's from this reality that Paul launches into the next few verses. Just quickly, Philippians chapter 1, what what happened before is Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Uh, He talks about the progress of the gospel going out, even to the Praetorian Guard, which was the elite of the elite when it comes to soldiers, and that the gospel was spreading even to them. And this was giving more courage to the believers. He talks about to live is Christ, but to die is gain, and that he's going to stick around, Lord willing, and that would be more fruitful for them to encourage them. And so he breaks into these verses, verses 27 to 30, and he talks about only conduct yourselves, in verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what he's telling them is to be good citizens of heaven. So the first way to be ready is to be good citizens of heaven. And he says, conduct yourself in a worthy manner, government and God, both those categories. And you might be saying, I don't see the the word citizen there, citizens of heaven. Where where does that come from? Well, we're going to see that. What matters most, Paul now gives them in Philippi, as he is absent from them, And his heart is made evident through the use of this key word, only, only. And it's placed there to say, hey, this is the most important thing to pay attention to. Uh, To move from your future progress and joy in the faith to becoming more like Christ. And whether Paul comes to them or not, his point is that they live out their heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of Christ. So even though the church in Philippi was a mature church, Paul knew it doesn't take long for a church to go downhill fast. So Paul warns them to be on guard against false teachers in chapter 3, verse 2, and repudiate those in the congregation who were enemies of the cross of Christ as well. And in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers. 
And so he's saying, behave in a way, though, that is consistent with the power of the gospel. We are to look into our own hearts and see if we have integrity. This is the appeal for all Christians at any point in time in history. What mattered most was the Philippians' consistent, holy conduct before God. And when a church is looked at by the unsaved, and they see no holiness, purity, or virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel because of hypocrisy. And, you know, the world takes that as an excuse many times. Sometimes when there's not hypocrisy, they'll still say, uh, I don't go because of all the hypocrites. And yes, there's always going to be hypocrites, but we shouldn't live that way as believers. So what do we do? Be good citizens of heaven. In Philippians 2, verse 15 to 16, he says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That word that comes in verse 27, conduct, conduct yourselves, it, the Greek word behind that is polidomai. And you might hear a word in there, a uh, sound, polido, and sounds like politics. And polis is a root word of that, and it carries the meaning of being a citizen. That's what is built up into that wor- word of conduct yourself in this way. It implies being a good citizen and that your conduct brings honor to the political body to whom you belong. And who do we belong to? We belong to Christ. So this verb carries the meaning of being a citizen. A good citizen's conduct brings honor to the city that he belongs to. So when Paul speaks of conduct, he will usually refer to walk in this way. And he'll use it and talk about uh, your citizenship. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are going to heaven, and we should act like citizens of heaven. The city of Philippi was able to boast that they had a privileged status as a Roman colony because Octavian, a uh, Roman general, had a decisive victory in the plains of Philippi, And because of this, the people of Philippi had Roman citizenship conferred upon them. And so they took pride in this. Uh, The verb here literally means to live as citizens. When you join this with worthily, to live in a worthy manner, Paul is using this as a metaphor, meaning not to live as citizens of Rome, but rather to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of a heavenly homeland. Roman society, like Greek society, was very community-oriented. Your skills, talents, and energy were directed at the interests of your community. A responsible citizen was careful not to bring shame. And so be an honorable citizen. That's what Paul is telling us. Worthy of the gospel of Christ is that phrase. He's giving the Philippians the parameters of this new city. They are citizens of this new city, the city of heaven, and they have responsibilities to fulfill. Ephesians 4.1 talks about this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called and to be faithful citizens of heaven. Well, we know that the church, I'm not talking about 
God who is in control of the church, but the church as we are made up is not perfect. It's imperfect. But it's the earthly manifestation of, of the perfect, of heaven, and the eternal kingdom of heaven in this present age. So all the more that we are to strive after Christ, to be like Christ, and, and that's important in how we respond to the world and when we are attacked. The Philippians had the ability to fulfill these responsibilities in the midst of their suffering in a way that was worthy of the gospel of Christ. There was now no room for selfish ambition, grumbling, or disputing. They had heard the gospel preached by Paul, and God called them to himself. So worthy of the gospel. That's what we would strive after. The Philippian Christians... They were never citizens of the covenant nation Israel. And in Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But they were fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So that's what we are to imitate, being a part of the household of God. There are other New Testament passages that speak of the necessity of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. I won't go through all of those, but Ephesians 4.1 is one of them. Colossians 1.10 uh, There's another one that says, so that you will walk in a manner of worthy. So this is something that is repeated, and that means it's important. What is the church's greatest testimony before the world? We'd have to ask ourselves that question. And when we say the church's testimony, we're talking about ourselves, not some big organization. It's the body of Christ. And we individually, each of us that are believers, trusting in Christ, make up that body and represent Christ. And we have to remember that, have to remember that. We can't give in to our flesh and want to use the world's standards and strike back at those that attack us. Be worthy of Christ. You know, Paul did know, and what what Paul did know was that he was primarily a citizen of heaven. And this is the citizenship that will never end. You know, our citizenship in, a, in this world will end. Uh, citizens of America or whatever country you're a citizen of, that will come to an end. But our eternal citizenship lasts forever. Jonathan Edwards talked about this, being a heavenly citizen. And he said this, quote, No inhabitants of that blessed world, heaven, will ever be grieved with the thought that they are slighted by those that they love or that their love is not fully and fondly returned. There shall be no such thing as flattery or insincerity in heaven, but there perfect sincerity shall reign through all in all. Everyone will be just what he seems to be and will really have all the love that he seems to have. It will not be as in this world where comparatively few things are what they seem to be and where professions are often made lightly and without meaning. But there, every expression of love shall come from the bottom of the heart 
and all that is professed shall be really and truly felt, end of quote. You know, and that's what heaven will be like. That's what we are to strive after as believers. A citizen of heaven uh, does not antagonize opponents. We are to represent the gospel of Christ. We're his ambassadors in this world. We don't antagonize. Uh, Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You know, that's speaking about within the church, but it carries over as well uh, into the world and those that we interact with. Uh, we don't want to be like some places that are called churches, but really are an organization that goes out and protests different social issues. Maybe the Westboro Baptist Church, that used to be a group that went out. I don't even know if they do it anymore. They showed up here one time at Grace Church across the way, just standing across the street and screaming out things uh, you know, about Grace Church and what we're doing. But they go to all kinds of places, uh, even funerals of police officers, and, and scream and yell and say, God is judging our country because of our sinfulness. Well, yeah, our country is being judged. But you don't go in public and make a mockery of the gospel of Christ and call yourself a church and do those kinds of things. How did Jesus deal with opponents? Well, he asked them questions, and he had them answer his questions. He exposed uh, one way, just several ways here. The first one, he exposed their motives. When he healed a disfigured man and he healed him on the Sabbath, he exposed their prideful hearts. Uh, Secondly, Jesus sought peace. When the soldiers came to arrest Christ and Peter cut off the ear of a high priest's servant, uh, Jesus healed him and he put away your sword. Uh, Jesus applied the scriptures and, you know, literally sat down with the tax collectors. And everyone was like, what what are you doing, Lord? (laughs) Having compassion on those who were lost. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He prayed in Gethsemane. And John 17 prays for himself and his disciples and for all believers. Many times when Jesus was accused of something, he remained silent. Um, He didn't just speak out every time to get back. He remained silent. He had self-control. Jesus loved on the cross. He didn't lash out or use his power to inflict pain. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So we are Christ's ambassadors. Uh, We also, uh, under being good citizens of heaven, we must be a devoted citizen with or without supervision. And what do I mean by that? You know, when you're... The saying is, if the boss is away, the employees play or do whatever. When you don't have authority there, things happen. As citizens of heaven, uh, whether Paul was there or not, he was saying, your conduct needs to be the same. You're honoring Christ. You're not honoring me, Paul, speaking of himself. You're representing the Lord. And that's who we are 24-7. That's who we are in Christ. Then our actions should show it. That's his point. Uh, We labor for the Lord. We put the gospel on display by our steadfast living being an outgrowth of our heavenly destination. When we live as true citizens of heaven, we will secondly stand in unity. The first one was to be citizens of heaven. 
Secondly, stand in unity. This is the second way to be ready for our opponents. And he talks about, there in 27, standing firm. And it indicates that they were to maintain this stand throughout their earthly residency, to be fixed in a position, to not give in, to not be pushed around or moved around, but to be anchored in one place. So stand firm in one spirit. And that's talking about the body of Christ, but also individually. Uh, stand firm in the face of spiritual opposition as individuals and corporately. Uh, Christians best stand their ground when they are struggling and when they are showing great courage. You know, if you've ever gone through a trial or something significant in your life and maybe suddenly you're bonded with a group of people, you find yourself in a situation, whether you're traveling uh, on airplanes or you're in a country and something happens and, it, and it's a trial and you go through that several days, you come out of that situation much closer to all those people uh, after that, that tragedy, whatever it is that's happened. And when you think about the body of Christ, we build our bonds together as we struggle together and go through trials and we take each other's burdens, we lift each other's burdens. But that will also speak to the world, to our opponents, and will, in many cases, quiet them when they see the love that we have for one another. But we are to stand firm uh, together. And it reminds me, I always remember the story back when they were excavating Pompeii and when the volcano had erupted and it buried that city in ash. And then years later, they go in and excavate and take out all the ash and they're finding all kinds of rooms and all kinds of archaeological things that are just amazing. And one uh, particular thing that they found, they found a Roman soldier still standing guard in the doorway uh, of the building that just stayed at his post, even when that volcano was erupting. I mean, that's really the picture of standing your ground no matter what comes. And Paul goes on in verse 27 and says, in one spirit that we are to be together. And that's the internal power or drive. And, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it probably refers to oneness of purpose that we have together. And we are to do things in one spirit. In Acts 4.32, uh, we see this oneness in that they were able to share with each other, believers, the things that they had. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property uh, to them. So we are together in one spirit. He also goes on and says, one mind. And that is the entirety of one's soul. It's the intellect and the affections, one mind. Their souls were to be joined together. The soul is the seat of desires and emotions. And again, the way that we have those same desires and emotions comes from being bonded together, being joined together in Christ and knowing the Lord and his word and what we are to strive after, we're going to develop those same desires and be unified in one mind. And just look at the world today. The world is so united in so many different causes, everything from the environment to unequal pay, inequality of any kind, 
feminism, kneeling at football games, I guess that was more in the past, but things like that, and people get worked up in the world because that's what they're striving after, the here and now. And yes, we believe in equality and we believe in justice, but we see that coming from God. God is the one that is in charge of that. The Philippians, like us today, are summoned to stand strong together in the faith. And the church must stand together in and for the truth of the word. So true citizens, unified, will, third, stand together for the gospel. This is the third way to be ready. Stand together for the gospel. And he goes on and says, and describes that, he says, striving together, contending together, preserving the faith. They were to act as teammates. That's what Paul was telling the Philippians. And the word athlete comes to mind from the Greek verb translated striving together. Uh, when you, in football, you have the offense and the defense, and they should complement each other. They shouldn't blame each other. I mean, that does happen, of course, blame each other. But in theory, they complement each other. Uh, you work together as a team. Each believer must complete his assignment, and that is what God has directed us to do individually with the gifting that he has given to us. In 2 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So striving together as opposed to striving or competing against each other, definitely. The church is striving together against sin and the ultimate enemy, which is not each other, but Satan and the world, the world system. Genuine unity has a purpose. The church's only true unity is grounded in the faith of the gospel. That's where unity is found. So when we realize what we've been saved from, what we were singing about earlier, that Christ paid the debt that we couldn't pay, we have his righteousness. It's not anything that we deserve, but it's given to us as a gift. How can we not be thankful and love each other? Paul quickly changes the picture from soldiers at battle stations to athletes working as a team, side by side, playing the game not as several individuals, but together as one person with one mind for one goal. And the goal is to preserve the faith brought about by the gospel. So to stand firm, and it takes teamwork, unity. Um, if you've ever seen uh, team sports, and maybe your whole team is participating and doing what needs to be done, but maybe there's this one person who's a showboat that always wants to mouth off to the referees or, or cause problems. It makes the whole team look bad. And so we have to remember that. We're a part of the body of Christ. Um, his church will be victorious, yes. But we need to model uh, what we have been saved from and what we are saved to, and that is heaven. Uh, years ago, uh, uh, the missionaries, and, and I work with uh, the missionaries, we were at a missionary conference in Norway. And uh, it's where we take an, a short-term ministry, ministries team that goes along with the missionaries and we'll have a conference overseas to encourage our missionaries and have some seminars that deal with topics that 
help them in their field, and we get to meet with the missionaries. Uh, and I, I see several people that were here uh, at that conference. But I never forget that uh, we had everything set up for the activities that particular day. And the STM team, when it was all done, went out there in an orderly fashion and took everything down in a methodical way and packed it all up, and it was all done. And the employees there at the Norway uh, Hotel, they were just like in shock. Like, I can't believe you guys did all that and got it all done in in one day how you did it. It was just foreign to them. Um, And maybe just a a cultural thing uh, that was going on. But I think more than that, I think it was a group of believers that had a unified purpose to serve, and that stood out to them. So the ultimate reason we strive together is to proclaim the faith of the gospel. And he says that, for the faith of the gospel. And the faith that he's talking about there, it has a definite article in the original language, which means it's talking about a body of truth, and that is the scriptures. And that is what we defend, and it's for the faith of the gospel. Jude says, uh, contend for the faith in Jude 3, once delivered to the saints. The faith, uh, that is the gospel, the bottom line is that the gospel is the urgency, and that goes towards our own progress and joy in the faith. Mutual love and unity is what we strive after. And that shows up after we've been contending side by side. So the faith of the gospel, it points to all of the truth that is necessary to be understood for one to believe unto salvation. Why do we feel isolated from other believers many times? Maybe we're not contending side by side. Maybe we're not serving together. Get involved. Serve in the church where you can, whether it's in your Bible study you go to, fellowship group, the church. As I was talking about, we have missionaries that come in. There's ways to serve them. The Shepherds Conference, many of you serve in that. There's other things going on all year long in ways that you can serve. Evangelistic opportunities. We have this, the course that Trent's teaching as well as others in the outreach department that are going out. And he goes on, Paul does, and says, the fourth way to be ready is to stand without fear. And this is where we're talking about don't be alarmed by your opponents. Be steadfast in the face of opposition. Alarmed, in no way alarmed by your opponents. And this word alarmed was used of horses that were frightened or spooked into an uncontrollable stampede. I've never seen that firsthand, but I can imagine that's pretty scary. I remember seeing a story a few years ago of a group of people in Cambodia. And they had a three-day water festival that was going on with boat races. And the water festival was on an island in a river in the capital city of Phnom Penh. And 10 people, for some reason, fell unconscious uh, in the crowd. And then people started to see it, and a panic ensued, and then a stampede. And everyone tried to cross the bridge at the same time, and 339 people died, 329 injured. Some people fell off the bridge and drowned in the water in the stampede. Uh, that's the type of word that's used here about 
don't fear. Don't have that kind of fear because of your opponents. And it's easy to have fear when, as believers, we are not in control of the government. Uh, God is in control of everything that happens, and it's in his plans and purposes. But he brings trials. He brings these opponents, so-called, into our lives for his purposes to teach us. Who were the adversaries of the Philippians? Well, we talked about it earlier. The Romans were, and they thought the Christians were atheists, the Judaizers, all kinds of idolaters, and ultimately Satan. Jesus told us, be not afraid of them that kill the body in Luke 12, 4. Tribulation would come, but Jesus had overcome the world. And regarding those in opposition in Philippi, Paul does not mention them specifically in Philippians, um, but he emphasized Christ as Lord and Savior. And Paul, knowing the loyalty of this colony, that is Philippi, to the cult of the emperor, there was many in, in Philippi that believed in the cult of the Roman emperor, and they worshipped him. And it's likely that the Roman citizens of Philippi who would have honored the emperor at every public gathering were putting pressure on the Philippian believers. But their allegiance was now for another Lord, and that's Jesus, who had himself been executed at the hands of this Roman Empire. You know, think about that. And so two conclusions can be made. Uh, because of our opponents that come after us. And what Paul says in here, it's a sign of destruction for them. Destruction. The fact that they are opponents of us. And that's a good thing for us. It's bad for them, and we want to pray for them, but it just points to the fact that we are worshiping Christ. But when it says it's a sign of destruction, it's an ancient legal term for a demonstrable proof, meaning it shows something to be true. These opponents have hostility, and this reveals the fact that they are unsaved and that they would receive the judgment of God. And destruction, it has the idea behind this word, is lostness, or the very opposite of salvation. A sign, secondly, a sign of salvation for you. Deliberate adversity is to believers proof of salvation. The world loves its own and hates and persecutes those who have defected to God. They see us as we're not going along with them. We're not participating in the th same things they do. Well, why not? And they don't like that. A Christian should rejoice when opposition comes his way because the obvious conclusion is that the world sees Christ in him. With this united front in spreading the gospel in Philippi by people who have future confidence, it gives them an uncommon boldness, and it will mean those who oppose them can in no way intimidate them. And that's, that's what we're striving for, to not be intimidated by the world. It's natural to have fear, but we have to remind ourselves from the word that who do we trust in? We trust in God, and we think back over the many wonders that God has done in the past history that we've seen in the Scriptures and how God has taken care of his own. This godly confidence will lead us to stand together, even in suffering, 
The fifth way to be ready is to stand together in suffering, uh, to believe in him. Salvation is of the Lord from the beginning to the end, and it describes what Christ has accomplished in us. The entire program of salvation, including faith and grace, is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not only faith was a gift from God to believe, but also the suffering that comes with your faith. So think about that, that Christ has allowed you. He's granted suffering. You're like, well, I I don't know that I want that as a gift. (laughs) But in reality, it's granted to us. Persecution from the world should not be viewed as punishment, but rather as a gift. Since grace is unmerited divine favor, men do do not deserve to suffer for Christ any more than they deserve to be saved through him. Uh, You might remember in Acts 5, the apostles, after their first beating by the Jewish elders, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so that's how we should look at it as well. There's a difference between general suffering and Christian suffering. In other words, there's times that maybe we do things that bring suffering on us, that we do something stupid or we're not acting in accordance with God's word but we're doing it from a selfish motive, and we suffer for that. That's not the kind of suffering uh, I'm talking about, but suffering for Christ when we represent him and worship him. The sixth way to be ready is to stand with Paul. And they looked to Paul, the Philippians, and the point is look to one another. They saw his imprisonment and his beatings. The Philippi church saw his spiritual response to sufferings and shameful treatment just like all the apostles and those around saw Christ when he suffered and how he didn't respond. And so they could stand with Paul. They sympathized together with him, and that encouraged them in their faith. It impacted the believers there in Philippi. We can have joy in the midst of the battle because it produces in us consistency, cooperation, and confidence. There is a joy of spiritual teamwork as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. When our time comes to go to be with the Lord, we will want to remember our demonstration of self-control, confidence in Christ, love for one another, and that we were faithful until the very end, even in the face of vicious opposition or misrepresentation. We stood firm together, unified for an eternal purpose. We have to remember that. We live in the here and now. There's all kinds of temporary purposes, but we strive for an eternal purpose. That will be the epithet of our lives, should be. We live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the final analysis, we, the body of Christ, must be united in these six ways in order to be ready. Number one, be a good citizen of heaven. Secondly, stand in unity. Third, stand together for the gospel. Fourth, stand without fear. Fifth, stand in suffering. And sixth, stand with Paul, look to one another. And I think when we have those things in mind, that's going to help us in the world in which we live now as time progresses towards the coming of Christ. Whether it's soon or far away, we don't know but we know we need to live for him. And our lights will stand out to the world because we're not reacting like them. 
doesn't always mean we're going to escape physical death from persecution, but what a testimony it will be to them of who we are dedicated to, and that's Christ, and we're not dedicated to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. And thank you for his demonstration of faithfulness to you and how he ministered, how he served you, how he dealt with persecution, how he was steadfast in his love for you and love for the body of believers and that he encouraged them to press on still more even as those uh, as he said, beware of the dogs, beware of those that are outside the camp that are going to come in and destroy or even attack just because we trust in Christ. But we count that as a trophy, as a trophy of grace. We give you the glory for knowing us, loving us, and saving us most of all, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.